0: As we've journeyed our way through the book of Revelation, there's been some really tough stuff. Some of it's been really tough because of the nature of apocalyptic literature. We've been confronted with images and scenes that seem like they'd be quite at home in the plot of a sci-fi book. And yet it's a message in the Bible and it's from Jesus Christ to the church telling us about the future. But then again, some of it's been really tough because of what it bodes, a persecution for Christians, Consequences for Christians who don't remain faithful and then God's terrible final judgment upon the unrighteous. There's been some really tough stuff. Uh, Something that's made it even tougher is the book of Revelation, once again because of its nature, is open to all sorts of various interpretations, some of which uh, are all mixed into now more popular understandings rather than traditional understandings. And sometimes, if anything other than these modern popular understandings is is taught, it's very quickly branded as being unbiblical or heretical, um, which is a bit of a problem for me because I've often found that to be true to the scriptures, I've actually had to give give a different approach to what some of the more popular interpretations teach. And so for me, as we've been working our way through Revelation, I've found that I've had to not only be reading the Bible and seeing what the Bible has to say about this stuff, but I've also had to research some of the more popular ideas and see how they do or do not fit with God's word and then try and come up with a way of explaining it so that everyone can get it. Um, And so over the last eight months, uh, that's how long it's been, by the way, folks. We've been in Revelation now for eight months. Uh, At times, you may have found yourself disagreeing with me And that's okay, you can do that because I'm not infallible. Uh, And at times, as modern popular notions have been questioned, your eyes may have been opened to see things a different way to what you've ever seen them before because you've probably never heard anything but the more popular views, of the modern popular views, anyway. So, for me, that's meant that over the last eight months, the time that it's taken me to prepare a message Um, has increased greatly uh, by at least a full day each week. Usually it takes me two full days to write a message, uh, to read for, prepare and write the message. Uh, But since we've been in the book of Revelation, that takes me at least three days and sometimes a bit longer. Plus then time, put PowerPoint and stuff together and go through the message a few times to get it in my head, which is all a bit of a problem really because... With the limited income of Bush Disciples, it barely covers three days' ministry in total. Um, And when I use more than that in just preparing for a message, it leaves me a bit behind in the week. Uh, By the way, if you're not already tithing to Bush Disciples, I'd encourage you, if you could start doing that, um, or if you are already giving, if you could increase your giving at all. Um, At our current level of giving, we're going backwards uh, and at the rate we're going, in two or three months, we'll have to cut three days' ministry back to either two or two and a half. So I just want to encourage you. Um, we don't talk about giving here a lot. Just Usually just leave it to how God um, leads you. I'm just putting that request out there. If, if um, anybody is feeling that they could support Bush Disciples a bit more, uh, it would be very appreciated. But anyway, I've found preaching through Revelation very rewarding, uh, but very difficult, and very time-consuming. And so this week, as Robin and I were discussing what we had to fit into our weeks, she said to me, so, is it going to be a difficult message this week? Now, that's code. What Robin was asking is, is it going to take two or three days, or is it going to take four or five days for you to do this? And I said, no, it's all good. It's all niceness this week. Um, it, it's just a picture of heaven coming to earth. It's all niceness. And it is all niceness. But it didn't end up being either easy or quick. So who's up for a bit of niceness? We, we've had a lot of time and tough stuff. Who's, who's ready to move past the tough stuff and into some good stuff? I saw a couple of hands come up. All right, so for you guys, we'll do that. Um, last week, we gave the heads up. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 marks a significant change in the book of Revelation. Now we're into chapter 21 and all the tough stuff's gone. Everything evil, vile and nasty has gone to hell. And chapter 21 is the hope that not only us, but every disciple of Jesus throughout history have looked forward to. So let's read Revelation chapter 21 in all of its niceness. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12, sorry, at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onox, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How does one describe the indescribable? I asked that question back when we were in Revelation chapter 4, which described the very throne room of heaven. And it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that we got that same dilemma again today um, because now the throne room of heaven has come to earth. Uh, The glory and the splendor of the throne room of heaven is now the glory and the splendor of the Lord God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end here on earth. You see, the throne room doesn't give its glory to God. The Lord gives his glory to the throne room. And likewise, the glory of heaven on earth is the glory of God, not, not the glory of some divine building program that God's been working on ever since, he, since Jesus returned to heaven. So when it comes to heaven on earth, this, I, I'm going to call it the divine renovation, right? This has got to be the renovation to be to all renovations, this one. When it comes to heaven on earth, where God makes all things new, how does one describe the indescribable? When it comes to our spatial and physical understanding, my only reference point is what I've seen on this earth. Your only reference point is what you've seen on this earth, unless you've got a very vivid imagina- imagination. And you know, when it comes to glory, to heaven on earth, I'm pretty sure we're all expecting something vastly superior something vastly more beautiful than what we've ever seen before, more delightful, more spectacular. How could we ever describe it from the experience that we've had in our present reality? I mean, I've seen some jaw-dropping scenes in creation, times where I've just found myself just standing there in silent awe and wonder. Places that come to mind are places like Yosemite in California, or, or the Rocky Mountains in Canada, or the birth of my two sons. And yet when I think to these things, I, I expect these things will just pale into insignificance. Sorry, Jake. It's just going <laughs> to pale into insignificance compared to the glory of when God makes all things new. Is that your expectation? Going to be better? Yeah. And yet... If you're completely honest, you may have found yourself just a little bit disappointed with the image that we're given of heaven on earth in the Bible reading we just read. Uh, Being a church of bush disciples, I sort of expect you like living in the bush. Put your hand up if you like living in the bush. Yeah, a number of them, number of hands go up. Um, If you're anything like me, you hate big cities. I had to live in one for three years once. And yeah, it was okay because I decided it had to be okay. But basically, as a rule of thumb, I hate big cities. Uh, But here we have this New Jerusalem, the biggest city that the world has ever known, becoming the image of the renewed Earth. Hmm. And even though we live more than 500 kilometers from the beach, don't we love getting to the coast for a holiday? The Scrivins has just been to the coast. How is that? Pretty good. Yep. Who else has just been to the coast? We we got there for a couple of days. Yep. I know some people have gone to the coast this weekend. And yet we're told that this renewed earth has no sea. Now, does anybody other than me have even a tiny little bit of a hint of disappointment at that prospect? Hey, come on, fess up. Who's a little bit disappointed that there might be no sea? Two of us, three of us, four of us, and the rest of us uh, oh, I can't. I can't disagree with God that. We'll see. You see, the thing is, as we've been working our way through this book of Revelation, um, we've been discovering that it's full of images and symbols that convey a message. And yet nearly always when we get to chapter 21 and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, what do we do? We click straight back over into literal mode. And we see this massive shining city as a physical and spatial reality descending from heaven. And we see it as it's going to be a literal description of what's going to be our new digs for eternity. I actually don't think it is. In the past, every time that I've read Revelation chapter 21, I've I've tried to picture me, a country boy, living in a massive city for eternity. Now, I've convinced myself it's going to be good because, well, nothing that God's preparing for us is going to be bad, is it? It's got to be good. But I've still pictured it as a city-dwelling experience just the same. But when I was reading and praying about what to share about with this message, all of a sudden it struck me. This heavenly city is a symbol. It's probably not a literal city. It's a symbol. How does one describe the indescribable? You describe it with symbols. Let me explain. Verse 2 said, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verses 9 and 10, this same heavenly city is described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, is any of that sounding at all familiar to any of you? Hasn't Jesus already got a bride? Who's the bride of Jesus? It's the church. Christians, the faithful disciples of Jesus, are presented to Jesus Christ, pure, And holy as his bride and now the city is being described as his bride so if Christians are the bride of Christ and this heavenly city is the bride of Christ what do you think the city is describing it's not difficult hey it's just it's describing us yeah, it represents the whole faithful people of God redeemed throughout the ages. And what it does is it tells us more about our transformation and tells us more about our place in God's kingdom than what it does about the physical and spatial attributes of our final destination itself. And when we realise this, any concerns that you might have about city dwelling or being in an oceanless landscape may become irrelevant because these things are symbols and most likely not physical descriptions at all. So just as the church is not a building and the church is not an institution or an incorporated organisation, the church is the people of God here on this earth and we know that the church is a temporary thing, it seems to me that this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is the people of God glorified. And everything about this image is about the glory of God reflected in his glorified disciples. It's about the peace and security of his, uh, that his people will experience for all eternity. It's about the exclusion, or perhaps a better word would be the expulsion of everything impure, profane, and violent. It's about the place of the Jew and the Gentile together as God's holy people. The vision that the sea was no more, well, that doesn't necessarily tell us that there'll be no sound of surf and no smell of salt in the air. Melissa, there's probably not going to be any big shopping centres, though. Do you remember what the sea represents? Um, We we read about it, we talked about it when we were in chapter four. Biblically, the sea has been used to represent chaos and evil. And it's not hard to understand why. Many a ship has been lost. Many a soul has cried out to be saved, but there was nobody there to save them. The storm and the tempest of the raging ocean has always been an image of chaos and evil beyond our ability to control and overcome. And in the renewed earth, that's gone. Evil and chaos are gone. Destruction from physical calamity is gone. In our news over the last couple of months, we've been hearing about hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, volcanic eruptions, These natural disasters are going to increase and increase right up until the Day of Judgment. But at the Day of Judgment, all these things stop. And they will never be ever again. They've gone completely. And then enters the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Uh, Behold, um, we don't say that word much. That means, wow, would you look at that? Look, look. The dwelling place, literally the word there is tabernacle or tent, of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow. Who's looking forward to that? Yep. What a blessing, eh? In all of the troubles and all of the persecutions that Christians have endured throughout history, and with the final onslaught of persecution and executions that we're going to expect to come under Antichrist and his false prophet, and of course all of the persecutions of the people of God that have taken, under the, that taken place under the rule of Babylon, which represents godless society, many a tear has been shed and there has been much mourning. And the martyrs have cried out, How long? But every pain, every source of pain, every sorrow and death are gone. They're relegated to hell. By the way, I hope you do believe there is a hell. Uh, if you don't believe there's a hell, I'm not sure where you think all this stuff's going to go, because we're told that all this stuff's going to go to hell. Verse five. God is making all things new. It's this divine renovation, I reckon. And then he writes, he says, write this down. Now, when God says that, it's like he's saying, you mark my words, John. This is really important. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Right? So God is saying, the buck stops with me. He's saying it's pointless for you to question what I'm about to tell you. So does that give you a bit of a hint that he's about to say something really important and maybe controversial? What does he say? Well, what he does is he affirms the contrast between those who will enter his glory and those who will not. And if you're someone who believes in once saved, always saved, you might have a bit of a trouble with this bit because I'm pretty sure he's talking about those who profess to being Christians. Um, but don't argue with me about it. You can argue with the Alpha and Omega about it, because this is what he says. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Okay? So it's the one who conquers, who has this heritage, and we all want this heritage, don't we? It's a good thing. Good thing, right? So who is the one who conquers? Well, we we're told this right back at the beginning of the book of Revelation, where Jesus dictated seven letters to seven churches who in what, what? Who were in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. He's writing to Christians. And to these Christians that he's right, he's telling that the ones who conquer are those Christians who remain faithful to Jesus to the end. So while some Christians will lose their love for Jesus, and they lose their love for other Christians, the one who conquers is the one who repents and loves. You want to be a conqueror? And you found yourself not loving? Repent and love and keep on loving. While some Christians will start to mix their Christianity up with idolatry and dabble a bit in the occult and in other religions, the one who conquers is the one who remains faithful to Jesus and to Jesus alone. While some may be lured into sexual immorality, the one who conquers remains pure. While some Christians will become lukewarm about their faith, the one who conquers repents of this and they become zealous for God. While others may believe the, believe the gospel, but, but they're just not obedient and they're not living it out in their Christian walk, the one who conquers is a person of both faith and action. While some who profess to be Christians Ultimately deny Jesus when, when their life is on the line, the one who conquers is a witness to Christ even if they're murdered because they believe in Him. Now that's what we discover as we work our way through those seven letters. These are the people who conquer in the midst of all of these temptations and troubles and trials that come upon the churches. And these churches are like prototypes of all churches that would follow. And I don't know if you can remember back that far, seven or eight months, when we're talking about studying these seven letters to the churches. But I kept asking the question, is this church, is this us? What can we learn from what Jesus wrote to this church? And there's a lot of lessons there for us about how we can be conquerors. And so the, the ones who conquer remain faithful to Jesus to the end. They love, they repent when they sin, they stand firm as witnesses for Jesus, even if they die by doing so. But contrasted with this are those who don't overcome, those who are swayed from following Jesus when the pressure comes on. And this is where you might have a little bit of trouble if you're a once-saved-always-saved devotee. Because those who don't overcome don't inherit this glorious thing that we're hearing about. They end up in hell, uh, which is described as the lake of fire and sulphur and described as the second death. There's the cowardly, now, there's not many lists in the Bible that talk about the coward, cowardice being a sin, is there? But to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to be courageous. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, that Christianity thing, that's just for wimps and people who need a crutch and, you know. But no, we need to be courageous to be Christians. We have to be even willing to die for our faith. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross to follow me. That's courage, real courage. To be a disciple of Jesus, we need to be courageous. Cowardice chooses self and safety over Jesus. Then there's the faithless. To be a disciple of Jesus, we we not only have to have faith about salvation, we have to live by faith. The faithless trust in themselves and not in God but the faithful trust in God and follow God wherever he leads. Then there's the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters. True disciples of Jesus repent of sin. We don't embrace it. And each of this list of sins that, that are brought up here refer very strongly to following other religions, um, the way of Jesus is, is very different to the ways of the world and it's very different to the ways of other gods. And anyone who wants to claim that it doesn't matter which god we worship and, and claim that it doesn't matter because all gods lead to the, to the one place, all I can say is rubbish, rubbish. To worship other gods is detestable to the one true God. And then the list concludes with all All liars. Sometimes it's very tempting to tell a little white lie, isn't it? Sometimes we m- might be tempted to think, oh, I'm in a bit of an awkward situation here. If I just tell this little white lie here, it's not going to hurt anyone and, and it'll all come out for the better. Uh, do you know another name for a little white lie? A dirty great big lie. A lie is a lie is a lie. Now, I think I might have told you before when it came to disciplining our children Um, The thing that got the harshest punishment was when they lied. Um, Because there's something just awful about lying. Um, Disciples of Jesus are a people of truth and righteousness. And even some who profess to being Christians are outed by their falseness. And as we've been reading our way through Revelation, we've been hearing about false teachers and, and false teachings coming into the church. There'll be no place for falseness, no place for lies in the divine renovation. The ones who conquer remain faithful to Jesus to the end. They love, they repent when, they're, when they sin, and they stand firm as witnesses to Jesus. These are the ones who have this heritage. All others are weeded out and sent to hell along with the rest of the unbelievers. So, if this heavenly city represents the whole people of God, and if it's a symbol, well, what's it telling us? Well, firstly, we will radiate the glory of God. Everything about this city radiates the glory of God, and we will too. Uh, th- there's not much glorious about me yet, okay, and um, but that's going to change, and Robin is very thankful that's going to change. Second uh, Corinthians chapter three says, "Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Right? God is already transforming us. Uh, there's a bit more work to, to be done on some of us than others, uh, but he is already transforming us. But on that day, with this re- renewed heavens and renewed earth, you and I will be transformed completely and we will radiate the glory of God. You know, we, we all, you might think of Christians who you maybe just don't quite get on with terribly well, and you think, oh, I hope I don't end up living next door to them in heaven. Um, that won't matter. And you think it's going to be because I'm going to tell you that they'll be transformed so they're much more likable people. No, it's because you're going to be transformed and you're going to know how to love. But they will be transformed and there'll be nothing bad about them. They'll be glorious just as you will be glorious. Secondly, the 12 gates will have the names of the 12 sons of Israel. This tells us that God's faithful people from the old covenant will enter glory through the covenant that they knew. We'll get to meet and get to know Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Ruth and Joshua and many others. Thirdly, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the apostles. That's telling us that the testimony of the apostles is our foundation. Why do I teach from the Bible each week? Why do I spend so much time preparing to preach from the Bible each week? Because the testimony of the apostles is the foundation of our faith. If we're not getting this into us, our foundations will be weak. The testimony of the apostles is the foundation of the faith of those who will be glorified and presented to Christ as his bride. That's why we don't teach a social gospel. That's why we don't teach humanism. That's why we don't research psychology or philosophy. It's because the testimony of the apostles that we find in the Bible is the foundation of our faith. Fourthly, as Justin told us this morning, the city is a cube. 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia high. Uh, That equates to 2,160 kilometres, by the way. Imagine that. Imagine a city that stretches from St George to Cape York. That's how long it's going to be. And then the same length would turn it the other way, and that's the width, and it's the same height. Uh, by the way, I did a bit of research on this, and half that height, when you get to half that height, you're past all the stratospheres and the ionospheres and the, all the various spheres, and you're in what is officially called outer space. Okay, so you're in outer space when you're half that height. Now, what's this image that, that, that we're being told about here? What, what's it telling us? Is it telling us that the city's going to be huge It represents the whole people of God and lots of them. A thousand means lots. The number 12 refers to 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. It refers to the people of God and lots of them. I don't think we should really be picturing that our residence is going to be a high-rise apartment somewhere in a 2160 kilometre cube. Likewise, the wall is 144 cubits. 12 times 12 equals 124, 144. Who, I, was, I was going to say who learnt their timetables at school? Do they still do times tables? They do, yeah? 12 12s are not 124, 144, I'm really embarrassed now. 144, representing the people of the old covenant and the people of the new covenant. But the the wall is telling us something else. For a city to have a wall means it gives. It's an image of safety and security. The people of God are safe and secure. Now, this might be lost on us today because we don't put walls around our cities. What do we do? We instead we put fences around our yards and put ferocious dogs into in our yards. But Back in biblical times, living out in the bush was was a pretty um, unsafe thing to do, Uh, because you were there. Unless you had your own army, you you could easily fall as a victim to marauding armies of bandits or thieves or whatever. And so, if you wanted to be safe, you went to a city that had a wall. And so, this is an image of the safety of the people of God, safe and secure then there's this list of 12 precious stones that adorned the foundation of the wall. And the commentaries that I read explain that these stones are the same stones that we find in the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, There are a couple of different names, but apparently that's because of the different ways that Hebrews and Greeks describe these various stones. Now, what did this breastplate represent? So the high priest, when he went in to minister before God, he wore this breastplate with these 12 stones set in it. And each of these stones represented one of the tribes of Israel. So the breastplate that he wore represented the people of God. So when he went into the temple, he was representing the people of God. So what do you think these stones might represent here in the wall? the people of God every image here is pointing to the city representing the whole people of God and there's not going to be any need for a temple or synagogues or church buildings because we'll be in the very presence of God himself there's no need for the sun or the moon we're not going to need street lights or Or a light on our phone to help us find the key and get the key into the door. Because God is light. And the pure light of his glorious presence will make everything bright. Some godly kings will be there. Isn't it good to hear that there are actually some righteous rulers in the world? Not sure if we've got any of them. But maybe we do. But righteous kings will be there as will the nations. That's us. All the disciples of Jesus from all all over the world will be there. Nobody's going to be left out. The gates will never shut. That tells us that there is no danger lurking on the outside, ready to try and get in. Why is there no danger? Because that, everything evil, has been dealt with and sent to hell. In glory, there will never be anything detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Life comes from God through Jesus Christ. All of what we've seen here are symbols. I'm actually none the wiser as to what this renewed earth will actually look like. Will there be seas and oceans in the geography of this renewed earth? I don't know. Can't tell you. Because we're not given a geographical description, it's a symbolic description. But I do know this all God's faithful children will be there. We will be safe. We will be healed. We will be provided for. We will be loved. We, along with creation, will be transformed to radiate the glory of God. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no evil or pain. There won't be anything accursed. Now, you blokes, you, you know what happened when, when Eden got cursed, hey? That's when you had to sharpen up your chippo and start cutting weeds. No, no, no chipping weeds in heaven. There'll be nothing accursed. And none of this will be temporary. You know, when we go on holidays, Robin doesn't like camping anymore. So um, when we used to camp, it was sort of always pretty good to start heading for home again because you know, living out in the rough is good for a little while and then you're, you're ready for home. Uh, but now we sort of go to places that are probably a bit more upmarket than home. And, and the whole time you're there, you're thinking, you, you might be at the beach and thinking, oh, this is nice, but oh, it's going to end in a week. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago we were really blessed we got to stay at, um, at a, a bit of a retreat place at uh, Mount Tambourine and um, it was just lovely fantastic and um, just able to just sit down do nothing, read a book whatever and the whole time I'm thinking gee this is nice but <sighs> it's only going to be here a couple of days and then we'll be going again the thing is when it comes to this new creation, there's not going to be anything temporary about it. It's going to be permanent. This is going to be our home. This is going to be our inheritance. This is our blessing forever and ever and ever. It's not going to come to an end. So all we can really do is guess what this new heaven and new earth is really going to look like. If I had to guess, I reckon it would be much more like the Garden of Eden than than what our world is today, except I know there's not going to be any Satan there. But no matter what it is, no matter what the renewed earth will be, we trust God and we look forward to it. I'm sort of thinking a bit about the party last night, um, Di Grimmett's party, a number of us went to. And Di is somebody who likes to do parties. She's very much like Robin, a bit of a control freak. They, They want to know what's happening. They need to know what's happening. And some of us are like that. We need to know what's happening. We need to know what's coming next. And it's a bit frustrating when we just can't know. And some people just don't like surprises because they just need to know you guys have no idea how hard it is for me to ever surprise robin with anything Uh, even if i give her something ridiculous and very unwomanly for her birthday she's still not surprised i don't get it but the thing is with this renewed earth it's just going to be a surprise for us and we look forward to it let's pray Oh, Heavenly Father, I feel like a, a kid waiting for Christmas morning, and all those presents are there under the tree, and they're all wrapped up, and go and look for the one that has my name written on it, and pick it up and give it a shake, and feel it a bit, and trying to work out what's inside. Wondering why mum and dad aren't up at three o'clock in the morning so we can start opening presents. <sighs> but knowing it's going to be a surprise that, that we just love and fill us with joy. Lord, that's how I feel when I think about the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. When I think about this new Jerusalem descending to earth when, when we will pre- be presented to you. Glorified, totally perfected, we as your new creations. Lord, sometimes it's ah, just want to know, just want to see, just want to be there. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us that excitement, that you would. Fill us with this expectation and this hope for the future. Lord, it's all too easy for us to, to fix our eyes on this world and, and the pleasures of this life and, and the joys of this life. And it seems that it's only when things start getting bad for us, when we start getting old or sick or decrepit that we really start to focus on eternity well lord i ask that you would focus our hearts on eternity even now no matter how well we are no matter how healthy we are no matter how blessed we are in this life lord focus our hearts on eternity let us always consider everything that we have now as temporary even unimportant, and fix our hearts on your eternal purposes. Lord, help us to live as a people who are living for eternity and who are living for you rather than living for ourselves. And Lord, we look forward to that day When Jesus Christ returns and all things are made new. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.